0: Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is Deborah McGee. She's a Broadway actor who's appeared on stage with some of the all-time legends. She's an opera singer who's sung all over the world with various companies. She's also an outspoken and incendiary blogger, an award-winning playwright and opera writer, and an enthusiastic Cleveland, Ohio cheerleader. Since we've never had an opera star in our studio before, we started off by asking Deborah about how one gets into opera. You were, you've were you been performing most of your life, from what I can gather from your, your CV, your resume. Um, <laughs> you started in opera, so I'm guessing you've got a heck of a singing voice.
1: Well, um, uh, thank you, and I do. I'm at Zwischenfach. I have a three-octave usable range, and that really helps when I'm sending my musicals places and have to have a recording and can't get singers, Mm. I can pretty much sing all the roles. That's (laughs) amazing. I I started before that. I was eight years old uh, and started in musical theater here in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Okay. Uh, It was called Heights Youth Theater, all one word, um, and exists in a different form now. Uh, But it was a pretty astonishingly wonderful way to go into theater. And it spawned um, a number of people with pretty serious careers. Um, Sure, yeah. uh, And also, well, Cleveland is such a theater town.
0: That's what I'm discovering. It's, uh, uh, It's in the middle of the country. And there are so many other theater, quote, theater towns that have you know, better PR, you know, Chicago, New York, Toronto, that sort of thing. Mm. And when you mention Cleveland...
1: <laughs> you think, oh, the mistake on the lake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that's something Yay.
1: else. Yes. Um, it's, Cleveland is, and I wish, to, I wish I could remember where I read this statistic, but Cleveland is the fourth largest theater producing area in America. Fourth largest. And that does include, at the community theater level, almost every little suburb has a community theater. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got two Lort houses, Great Lakes Theater Festival and the Cleveland Playhouse, which I'm quite proud to be attached to. Um, There are a number of smaller theaters. There are a couple of small equity theaters. There are a bunch of theaters that are not equity, but use equity contracts. There's a theater school, uh, Baldwin Wallace university, which is just outside Cleveland, which is sending uh, performers pretty much straight to Broadway. Um, So there's, and there are a few theater education uh, entities from Tailspinner Children's Theater, uh, to I don't remember the names of the others because I don't have kids, but there are schools for Tailspinner is mostly for smaller um kids. Right. And they do some devising um education. And then there are straight up after school theater programs that are also turning out really professional young performers. Ah, uh, there are so many writers' groups. There are so many theaters that support new work. Yay! Yes, that's what we need more of. I might move yes. to Cleveland. Uh, and <laughs> and it's affordable um, compared with many other cities. Um, everybody does, of course, the two-to-three-job shuffle. Absolutely, sure, yeah. Uh, but that's the way life is in America these days. Yes. But, yeah. yeah. And, I
0: wonder about other countries but that's a whole other set of topics. That's yes, that's another discussion. <laughs> but uh, just to just to make it clear for uh, both of our listeners here that you do not work for the uh, Cleveland Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're just proud of Cleveland. I think that's wonderful.
1: Well, having gone away, I left when I was 18, moved to New York had a performing career or the beginning of one and then I moved to New Mexico and had a whole other performing career, and then I went back and forth for a long time, and then I went to Australia and got a degree, finally, Mm. a a tertiary degree uh, in music, uh, classical music, and and when I came back from Australia in 2006, the beginning of 2006, and came back to Cleveland to think, well, what am I going to do next? I fell madly in love with Cleveland. It's so different from the Cleveland in which I grew up in which there were riots and pollution and sure. and it was still a strong theater town. I mean Cleveland definitely raised me as a theater artist, but Sounds like Cleveland
0: rejuvenated itself while you were gone.
1: Yes, completely. Completely. And,
0: and it Sounds extremely arts friendly too, which is a rarity in these troubled times.
1: Now, Cleveland always was. the uh, Laura Kepley, the artistic director of Cleveland Playhouse, made a comment because she's a recent Cleveland transplant, maybe three or four years. And her comment was that the amount of arts money given in the greater Cleveland area is among the top... Sort of numbers in the country. Why is that? Well, if you think back to the origins of Cleveland, I mean, Rockefeller started here. Okay. There's always been long, strong support for the arts. We've got one of the five top symphony orchestras in the world. Right. You know, not just in America, in In the the world. That takes money. It does. I mean, but. It,
0: there uh, there are so many places throughout the country that are you know hurting for dollars and and we watch education dollars just go away and we watch arts dollars become a thing in the of the past like overtime yeah. and and yet Cleveland still seems to be pumping its its arts community to the max that's unbelievable. Yes. that's remarkable. It is. And and shows a, a, a great faith in its people.
1: Well, Cleveland is also sort of small enough and far enough off the beaten path that the idea that arts anchors economic growth hasn't been poo-pooed here. Okay. Um, I, I can tell you a little bit about the Gordon Square Arts District which is anchored by Cleveland Public Theater all right which is Cleveland's major non-union theater they do more they do more to support seminal art making in all of the arts uh, well in all of the performing arts than any theater I know of anywhere else uh, and so they and some people called the Detroit Shoreway Um, district and the Gordon Square Arts District, which is a nonprofit, put themselves together and went out to build an arts community, a thriving economic arts community in an area of Cleveland that was sorely depressed. And Cleveland is still, you know, we still have money trouble like everybody else. Sure. Yeah. Uh, But it has become gordon square has become this living breathing vital area with restaurants popping up and galleries and theaters there's there is an old wonderful old movie house but there's the near west theater theater ninjas i'm going to leave somebody out and they'll get mad at me <laughs> Theater Ninjas is fun. They're a devising company. And they've actually done some collaborations with the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is a major, don't kill me, provincial art museum. Sure, yeah. With a long, strong endowment. Uh, they've just done this huge, fabulous renovation. They do, have always done major outreach into the community. And that's the thing about Cleveland It's not a small town, but it feels like one. As
0: far as big schools and universities, we tend to to associate burgeoning or or successful arts communities with a comparative higher education population.
1: Interesting. Well, we've got uh, at University Circle, where the orchestra lives and the art museum is and the Museum of Natural History and the Botanic Gardens, we have Case Western Reserve University, True, yes. Which is no slouch. No, absolutely not. And actually, part their undergrad theater department is really interesting and very good in a holistic way. In other words, people come out knowing something about life, not just about acting.
0: Oh, that would be a good thing.
1: Um, and uh, the MFA uh, Actors Program at CASE is in partnership with Cleveland playhouse Mm -hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact this week I will see their production of too true to be good the Shaw play right Uh, a number of them they are usually actors who are already at a professional level but want to come back and get an MFA so they're brought in as a company and they are outstanding they perform as a company but they also perform in the main stage uh, Cleveland Playhouse shows. Actually, one of the MFAs played the female lead in Yentl, mm-hmm. which just closed recently. So it's there's something very family
0: about Cleveland. Right. It sounds like it. It's it sounds like you're all taking care of each other, you know, arts wise, theatrically.
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um, I've never known a community that behaved so supportively. When I was growing up here, and I would go after a role, and there would be a bunch of other girls going after the same role, we would cheer each other on. We would help each other. Right. And whoever got it, we would celebrate. And that, for the does,
0: most- that, that doesn't sound like actors at all.
1: No, it doesn't. Uh, when I was in New York, when I was in New York and I started gaining callbacks, mm-hmm. and I would see the same group of people at musical theater callbacks. Yep. And it was so tense and so scary that I started doing badly at callbacks. Well, so, so I had a strategy, okay, uh, which was that I started just cheering everybody else on. And they thought I was nuts.
0: <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but that, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, so much. Until-
0: well, part of it is that New York is, is huge and everybody – Goes there and everybody's in quotes. I mean, you know, yeah, all
1: right.
0: And yeah. it, it's they're dying to make it, they're striving to make it. They're working six waitressing jobs or waitering jobs yep. at a time. Yep. And every audition is with strangers, yes. is with professionals, is with people who can pick and choose from the long line of hopefuls that stretches down the block. Yes. So there's very little personal <laughs> personal consideration. Exactly. And it becomes more like uh, an emotionless, careless uh, machine.
1: Actually, it becomes like war. Here's what happened. I started cheering these people on. And after they got all over thinking I was nuts, they started cheering each other on. And then we started calling each other the callback kids.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful.
1: It was, and it was a, a specific period in which I was going after chorus work. Right. So you would be sitting in this place, and then you would all go dance together, and then they would separate, you know. We all started doing better work, and that's Cleveland. That's the Cleveland in me. And yeah. the Cleveland playwrights, for the most part, I would say 95% of us behave like this. It, we share opportunities. We are in writers' groups together, where it's not you versus me. It's you have what you do, I have what I do. We can yep. learn from each other. We can support each other and help each other. And we do.
0: That's that's wonderful. It's um, I live in Ithaca, and we are. I'm going to call this a small town because it really is. We've got two major uni- uh, colleges universities, Cornell. <laughs> and Ithaca College, and both have spectacular theater programs. Right. We have um, a major regional summer theater, The Hangar. We've got nationally known The Kitchen Theater. We've got all these very disparate little groups that pop up for a few years and then morph into something else. But we've got a huge theater community where most of us know each other. Cool. and. It's very much the same. You know, we yep. all go out for auditions, and it's wonderful to have this this family, this this community of artists, as you know, as it is in Cleveland. Yeah, helping each other out because the art grows.
1: Yes, and you exactly.
0: grow as an artist, and it becomes a joy. When yep. it's supposed to be?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we do this because we love it. Oh,
0: the hell with New York! All right? What did you play on Broadway?
1: I uh, my first was King and I with Yul Brenner, which is going to tell you how old I am. Uh, so I was in King and I with Yul Brenner. I was a nanny uh, for the children in my little Barbara Matera Sarong.
0: There you go. Uh,
1: and then I did uh, on Broadway. I did um, Camelot with Richard Burton. Nice. Yeah, I learned more about concentration from standing on a stage with Mr. Brenner and generosity yeah. from Richard Burton as an actor. Um, and then I also did the first National, which is the same level of contract, but it's not on Broadway, of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Sounds like
0: an illustrious career. Broadway, I mean, that's...
1: Yeah. That's,
0: you know, it, you don't go anywhere else from there. No. Except home, no. maybe.
1: I don't know. <laughs> well, and I went... I went actually from there. I went back into opera and went and sang with Santa Fe opera and, um, did a bunch of other sort of ancillary things in New Mexico. I want to talk about
0: the opera for a minute. Um, you brought up a word, which I came across from reading your bio, which I was going to mention. Um, (laughs) sufficient. Yes. Yes. And it's before (laughs) anybody calls up and tries to have us thrown off the air for cursing at each other. (laughs) um, I looked Most it up. Like I
1: yeah. say it's They say, God bless you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it, it's a German word. It means
1: between the categories, which means... Normal vocal range. Okay, fach also means box, and it yes. also means voice. Uh, and a fach usually you've got two and a half octaves, but you don't much use both ends of the register. Okay. And you do sing a certain... Group of roles, but the roles are grouped
0: according to vocal range. Right. Yes.
1: And I always had an interest in um, well, not being put in a box. Right. Uh, And when I and um, I'm an intuitively good musician, which we could also have a discussion of uh, genetic theory or the cosmic consciousness or you know what have you. But when I went to undergrad, actually at Cleveland Institute of Music, which is part of Case Western Reserve at the ripe old age of 16, uh, my voice teacher realized that I was going to get really bored really fast if I was just given the regular Italian songs that you start with and how that sort of career, um, how that sort of education moves forward. So he started giving me twentieth century um art songs to learn and sing. And that actually became a twenty five year career of singing at that time living composers. They're mostly gone or many of them are gone now, the uh, that I climbed into at that point. Like example of who? Ah um the big names are Samuel Barber. Okay. Aaron Copeland. Uh yep. Ned Roram, who is, I think, still with us. Uh, and then Vincent Persichetti, who people know really a lot of band mu- He wrote a lot of band music and mm-hmm. chamber music. But I... he was the head of the-, the theory departments at Juilliard and Curtis.
0: I saw on your resume that you specialized in not only Persichetti, but Dominic Argento. Ah. Uh... Uh... Oh, oh, my heart. <laughs> you had this this yeah. wonderful oh. vocal ejaculation when I mentioned his name.
1: Argento, so there are the American neoclassicals and the American Neoromantics, and he is a neoromantic. So his music is lush and theoretically very difficult, which it just sets all my little lights ablaze. Mm. But he also, there's something emotional that he understands about the texts he works with okay. that in, in a not dissimilar way from Sondheim. All right. Which it's highly complex, but for the singer, there's a whole lot of work you don't have to do to get the acting across.
0: So it's present in the text, it's present in the music.
1: Yes. And um, also he, I mean, he wrote probably my favorite opera of all time, and I'm still waiting to sing it in more than a concert, um, The Aspern Papers, based on the Henry James novella.
0: Yes, wow. I had Uh, no idea that somebody actually went and wrote an opera about that.
1: And it's extraordinary. You get the... Feeling of Venice, of these rooms that are high and wide and damp and echoing, and the decay of the life, and the one character who is still alive and trying to, well, and is faced with this massive moral dilemma. So Argento and his art songs, I've done numerous concerts of Argento's art songs, and I'm thrilled to hear that there are people outside of formal music who actually know who the man is.
0: Really? (laughs) I grew up listening to traditional, classical, that's what we had in the house, that and show tunes, um, which caused my father no end of worry, but... (laughs) uh, (laughs) But yeah, if if I had to name a present-day classical composer, I'd be hard-pressed to do so. So I keep thinking if I ever get on Jeopardy, I'm going to have to be very careful.
1: (laughs) Well, and present-day classical composers, I'm nowhere near as well-versed as I am in the mid to late 20th century. I want to jump ahead a little bit um, to your playwriting.
0: You've done Mm. all these wonderful things throughout your life, you know, opera, Broadway, and then you started writing not too long ago. And yeah. I want to go off on two things right now. What made you actually decide to sit down and start writing? And uh-huh. what is this obsession you have with the ring cycle? Oh, God. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your list of plays here and you've got <laughs> ring cycle for Dumpkoffs and <laughs> Richard Wagner's entire ring cycle in 10 minutes. Wait a minute, folks. Here's here's the good part with sock puppets. (laughs) Uh, Deborah, go.
1: Let's, well, so let's start with Wagner. Okay. Um, I ignored Wagner most of my life. Uh, I'm Jewish, and he was a notorious Nazi sympathizer. Hitler loved him, and his uh, offspring were um, great Nazi sympathizers, so I never did. Yeah. And I got fascinated by the Edda, um, the underlying Norse mythology. Exactly, yeah. And then I started uh, listening to what people had been saying to me all my life about Wagner's music and how it literally changes your brain waves. So that was interesting. And then I started to write a piece called a straight play, full length straight play called The Ring, which actually is about a Holocaust survivor. And then I went to uh, San Francisco Opera, did the entire Ring Cycle in a week. And it happened to be a summer that I was going to be in San Francisco for a family wedding, so I extended my stay by a week. And I thought, you know what, I am so obsessed at this point with the leitmotifs and with the complete ridiculousness of the story that Wagner ended up telling yeah. That I thought, well, what the heck? Why not do the whole thing as a 10-minute play? And so <laughs> I, at, at which I sing myself, all the roles. And then I had a very, very bad foot sprain. I was in a boot up to my knee. Yep. I couldn't move. I scored it for ukulele. You scored an opera
0: for ukulele. I love this already.
1: I had to have... Of course, Siegfried's horn call, which is one of the most iconic leitmotifs. Mm -hmm. So I have uh, a friend, uh, an aspiring playwright, actually, who played trumpet. Well, she stepped in, but also I figured if I can only do this standing still, I'm going to have to use puppets. So of course you use sock Sock puppets. Sock puppets, of course, yes. And she became my assistant. Um, so she helped me on and off with when it was like there were moments when I was literally flinging them off and holding my hands out and she would put them on and, yeah.
0: It's, this, oh, this sounds wonderful. Oh, I wish I could see this.
1: I couldn't. I didn't have time to memorize it, what with being laid up and right. making the sock puppets, which I'd never done before.
0: <laughs> uh, Do they have little horns on them?
1: Uh, some of them. Yay! Some of them, and, and you know, the big blonde braids. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, Why did yeah. you actually sit down and start writing? You've been on the, what I call the other end of the profession for so yeah. long.
1: Yeah. In 2004, I moved to Australia to get a degree, a master's uh, in music. And in, in that degree at the University of Melbourne, one of the requirements was to participate in uh, a two-week workshop culminating in the performance of four 15-minute opera scenes written by the composers at the Faculty of Music there at uh, University of Melbourne. And the one that I was in was so badly written, Mm. so frustrated and and also impossibly badly notated. It turned out to be a, young, a very talented young man whose name, thankfully, I've forgotten, who composed on his electronic keyboard. Yeah. And so the music went into the computer and came out printed with uh, an E-flat and a D-sharp, which for those of your listeners who don't know, it's the same, same note. With, yeah looks totally different on the page, you'd have an E flat and a D sharp in the same measure. So yeah. that was one side. And yeah. then the other side was, we were in the green room and waiting for rehearsal, and somebody came in incensed because her roommate ate his Mars bar the wrong way. Uh, okay. I, I cracked. <laughs> I cracked up, I was the only person in the room laughing. How you eat a Mars bar in Melbourne, in Australia, is very much like you eat an Oreo cookie in America.
0: Uh, I, okay. I didn't realize Mars bars were, um, yeah, that critical down under.
1: Okay. Well, so I'm walking home from yet another rehearsal. I was so frustrated and crazed by this entire thing that people started looking at me so, like, giving me wide berth, like a crazy person on the street, which I was. Oh, well, of yeah. course,
0: Operate all that,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I realized that I had to do something constructive with all of this frustration. Or, I mean, I was even considering just leaving the program Uh, because I couldn't drop this class. My credits wouldn't transfer to the states. I had one more semester before I had a master's of music. Right. And so I was walking along, and out of my mouth comes, I eat a Mars bar every day. I thought, okay, now I really am losing my mind. Yep. I like to take the wrapper off part way. (laughs) And I thought, okay, this is kinky. I like it. There you go. Yeah. By the time I got to the other side of the Botanic Gardens, it was a 25-minute walk, I had three voices in counterpoint, each of whom ate their Mars bar a completely different way. And I thought, you know what? Fine. I went to my favorite little wine bar. I got a big glass of red wine. I took the badly notated music, turned it over, drew ledger lines, and wrote down those three so I wouldn't forget them, put in two more voices, and put it away I was much calmer about a week later a couple of days before we had to perform these insane opera scenes (laughs) I got some friends together and the conductor who was mentoring the conductors and we learned it and ended up performing my little quintet at the after party I get my degree, fast forward, I come home to Cleveland because I can't, go, I can't afford New York, I can't go back to New Mexico, my allergies are too bad, so I stopped here to figure out what was next, and ended up staying because I fell in love with Cleveland, and there was a request for proposals from Cleveland Public Theater for their Big Box series, which is a seven or eight week series of workshop level uh, productions in which they basically give you the key to the theater on Sunday morning and you give it back the following Saturday night, having done three performances of something. And I sent in my vocal quintet and my idea of that if I added a sixth voice, an antagonist who was trying to proselytize them all to eating Snickers.
0: Uh Aha, there we go. I was wondering when the Snickers bar would show up.
1: Okay, and that it would, uh, that it was an allegory for sexual preference because almost all of these characters had some kink or this another.
0: This has nothing to do with the fact that a Snickers bar has nuts in
1: it, does it? <laughs> well, of course, I couldn't use the trademark names um, by the time I got this. Uh, uh,
0: See, I, I would think op- they'd be pleased as
1: Punch to have their. They're
0: confectionery products you know uh, uh, operaized
1: well it 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 turned into a, a really strange little opera, and that so that became the first thing i've ever written, and they awarded me this grant, and then I had two months to write a chamber opera. I had never written anything before in my life
0: but the experience you've had doing so many other pieces of work it seems like you knew what you would know what's supposed to be in there in the first place
1: well it accrued to me um all of that experience of course uh the one thing i did not understand was dramatic structure Ah, so i had five arias five i am songs in a row Mm. (laughs) and then the quintet and then a 14 minute Essentially so I mean, it was just very it was fun to do, audiences loved it. Somehow I got a lot of publicity. Uh it launched me as a CBT artist, which I I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am to be involved with that place. Yeah. But that's I'm sorry, the very long story of the first of the reason that I started writing. But you've been and
0: prolific how- since then. It's it's yeah. from, you know, seems like writing took with a vengeance.
1: Yeah, the dam burst. Well, I've always been a good writer. I was also, uh, one of my day jobs, I was a technical writer-editor at Los Alamos National Laboratory with no um, advanced degree. I'm the only person in the history of the lab who was ever hired uh, based on a high school diploma Mm. uh, to be a writer-editor, a tech writer-editor. Right, right. And it's just that I understand, well, music is a language, and of course language has music, but how they break down in my brain, it's very similar.
0: Right. So. Well, there's, there's rhythm, there's meter, there's, yes. you know, when a line works, you know, when a line is out of sync, you know, when a line just doesn't sound right, because you've got the alliteration in the wrong space, or the the assonance goes on a little too long, or, right. Something in the tempo just isn't right. It's so, people yell yeah. at me for you know tweaking words like mad because I don't mm. have the right word. It doesn't make it you know. But oh, you have to. I mean, it's yes, crucial. It, it is crucial because, as you said, there is music and language. There is language and music, and you you take a playwright like Mamet, all right? Yeah. Who's who's back and forth? His his quote naturalistic unquote. Language does have its own rhythm, sequence, music, and you find yourself riding on the back and forth, until it comes to a complete stop. Right, and yes. you've you've been someplace on an emotional oral o a u r a l journey.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. And so many, so many writers of all ilk, b- but so many playwrights don't write. They write for sense, not for sound. Yes, and. Yeah. Even people who write brilliant dialogue, dialogue that shows rather than telling, rather than explaining, sometimes don't have, often don't have an ear. You write that playwrights, all tellers of
0: tales, bear the responsibility not only to report our lives, our societies, but also to improve them. Now, let me finish asking the question, isn't this a wee bit pretentious? Isn't Just entertaining the public enough. And don't take pretentious as a negative thing. No, I'm
1: not. Um, um, I have a very strong, oh boy, how do I put this? I was raised to believe that we are on earth to improve each other and support each other and repair what needs repair. So rather than being a level of pretension, I think it is actually way at the other end of the scale. It's a level of humility. I'll never succeed in any, I'll never succeed. That won't stop me trying to repair the world And to add to the sum total of human human kindness, human compassion, human goodness. And Richard Wagner's entire ring cycle in 10 minutes with sock puppets has an object lesson. But you laugh all the way to the lesson and you don't go away thinking, hmm, I just got taught a lesson but hopefully, even as an actor, I believed this, hopefully you go away from anything that, that you take in a little bit changed, and a little bit changed for the better. One would hope so. And that's really what my highfalutin words um, meant, mean.
0: I think if you don't leave a play or a movie or some... Something that somebody has bothered to take the time to write to put pieces of themselves into to have produced to have shown if you don 't walk out of there changed in some even microscopically significant way you, then you 've wasted your time well we talk about I, we talk about things having depth and other things being fluff, and there 's no firm dividing line between those two. There are ranges yeah. of fluffness and Depthity and yeah. Oh I'm a, stealing those words. Oh, no 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 you're not. Those are mine. Fluffness and depthity. That's my next
1: play. Don't touch it. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, but they will show up somewhere at some point, at least in conversation. You can borrow it it's fine with me. Because <laughs> they're great but, words. Yeah. But uh, and that's uh, a whole other subject, uh, the oh, coinage yeah. of words. Exactly. Which I think we do. And I think it's great.
0: I love doing it. Of the plays you've written, I've looked the I've looked these up, they're all on your website. And you write for a predominantly
1: female cast. You betcha. When I was performing, I note, and I do still perform. I do still act. I'm actually embarking on something new, which is great. Um, uh, but even when I was in my 20s or 30s, I was noticing how many roles there were for men and how few for women. And I hit 40, and all of a sudden, there were maybe 10% as many roles for women as there used to be. Mm-hmm. So when I started writing, yes, in my mind for my first probably three or four shows was, oh, I could play that role. Um, but I know so many really excellent female. Actors, singers, dancers, sure, sure. there's no work to be had.
0: No kitten, because nobody's writing for them.
1: Well, I am. You are. <laughs> I am now. Um, and so it's, um, I set myself not just to do what we had talked about, about my moral imperative of playwriting, but also to make work for women. And of course, I'm old enough to remember the beginning of women's lib and the idea of uh, equal pay for equal work, which we're still nowhere near.
0: Mm, It's still a radical, heretical idea. It's,
1: you know, I'm going to say that. It's a
0: shame. It's a shame. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame.
1: Yes, that totally agree. Totally agree. And looking at uh, of course, I got involved in theater not too long after uh, Julia Jordan made her big speech at the town hall meeting, and the establishment of Fifty Fifty in Twenty Twenty uh, League of Professional Theater Women is one of the there are three entities who are behind that, and so all of that was happening, and I was encouraged uh, by a woman who a woman playwright who was. I can't call her a mentor, but she opened a big door for me and um, uh, encouraged me to join the International Center for Women Playwrights. And I became very active very fast and went on to the board, actually, I think within a year of joining the organization because the idea that 80% of the plays produced in America are written by men, Um, I just for myself sat, to have sat down a couple of times over the last few years and looked at what's running on Broadway because right. that's my Bailiwick. That's where I'm from. And, of course, that's where I want to go back. Um, and I, I did research on who wrote them, who was in them, who was on their creative teams, and I came up with the 80-20 even there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I can't change the world, but I can certainly affect my own behavior.
0: So let me ask you a really dumb question here. Is this because out of everybody out there who's practicing this art, only 20% of them are women? Exactly.
1: No, Eh, wrong. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for playing. well, and thank you for asking, because I tend to go right past that. That's what made me so incensed. I know all these women playwrights. And then I found, uh, Gina Davis founded uh, an organization for gender parity in film. Mm-hmm, and right. started, I started learning about all the inequities over there. And Absolutely, yeah. I don't know if they've done the study in theater, but in film, it is proven that the highest grossing films... of them are written by women. Really? And yet only 20% of the screenwriters are women. So, and we could, I mean, we could talk about the Yale study where the students were sent up for a job. They had a script that they kept to for the answers they gave. uh, And this is all filmed and and on the internet. Um, They had the exact same script. They answered all the questions the exact same way. And the men and women executives uniformly, even the women, said that the female applicants were not people they really wanted to work with. They were pushy, they were uh, too aggressive, and when it was pointed out to them on camera that it was the identical words used by the male candidates – they took a moment and thought about it. And I think the question here isn't, are there really good women writers, but the re-education of the money people, of the people hiring. And I do think that's happening because I am at base an optimist and I do see things changing. I do also see a big title pushback by oh, pardon me, middle-aged white men Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that it's a class, the 80% male writers are a class that did not understand that they were trading on an entitlement. Exactly. And of course they're going to push back. It's their livelihood, it's their art, it's their creativity and joy. Well, I mean, there's, there are
0: 10,000 writers out there at 12 theaters. Yeah, right? <laughs> Which. In itself is a whole nother interview. But, yeah, but rectifying inequalities is never easy because there's only a certain amount of whatever that product is. And once you want to give it to somebody else, you got to take it out of somebody else's hands. And
1: unfortunately, doing,
0: that's the case.
1: Well, what we're doing now is making instability. Instability in a really good way because that's the only time that anything shifts.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk to me about this 50 50 for 2020.
1: So 50-50, some people say in 2020, by 2020, there are various groups actually all over the world at this point. Um, the little corner of that that I was involved with and am still, although I've uh, rotated off the ICWP board, is called the 50-50 that's,
0: Award. That's the International Center for Women Playwrights, by the way.
1: Correct. Yes. Thank you. Um, I was co-chair for two years of this award with the wonderful playwright Alana Gartner, um, who really is the impetus behind the award, and that's not to give short shrift to the ICWP board or membership, but Alana really spearheaded this, and I got her to send me the little blurb, um, which I will now read to you. The ICWP 50-50 award was started in 2012 to honor those theater companies that had produced women playwrights in at least 50% of a given season. That doesn't mean 50% of the plays on the docket. It means 50% of the performances, meaning that women playwrights made as much money as men playwrights in a given season. Mm. Uh, There were only five recipients for the 2012 award, the inaugural year. The word wasn't really out. Um, I'm pleased and proud to say my beloved Cleveland Public Theater was one of them.
0: Yay, Cleveland Public.
1: Yay. Um, In 2013, we had 29 theaters in five different countries. Uh, 2014 nominations will open later this spring, and you go to the – icwp website which is triple dub women playwrights w-r-i-g-h-t-s dot org Mm. Uh, and you'll find a little link there um anybody can nominate because uh this committee of dedicated women go through all of the nominations and verify all of the seasons of all of these theaters and actually do. I did a huge research project last year on Canada, uh, on every theater in Canada. So the nominating committee finds theaters, but we really also want to hear from if your theater has 50% or better performances by women playwrights in a given year. And Mm -hmm. I think doing a June to June or um, our five countries for 2013 were U S Canada India, Italy, and Norway. Really? That's interesting. It's the International Center for Women Playwrights. Yeah. And the problem of gender parity is worldwide. It's not just us. Well, Deborah McGee, give us your uh your website. Uh dot Oh dear. I think it's probably org. Um and it is woefully not updated. I need to. Um the organ, however, where I um Musicalized, shall we say, to carry a metaphor way too far. There you go. Is called Mise en uh, Theatre, M I S E E N T H E A T R E dot WordPress It's my blog. Okay. And it's where I um, voice my incendiary opinions. I do. Um, and a very interesting a- blog it is, too. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to hear that. I do put forth a weekly writing prompt. And even if it's beautifully written, we are not all form. Form is craft. Art is content.
0: Exactly. Well, Deborah, it's been <laughs> a thrill. We could go on for another hour, and I'd love to.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you for this. I, I mean, this has to... been great fun, and, and it's, you know it's lovely to be listened to.
0: Okay. Thank you, Deborah, and good luck with everything.
1: Thank you.